Elective surgery in Canada has virtually ground to a halt owing to service closures related to the COVID-19 pandemic response. But the backlog of elective and non-emergency surgeries is building, and at some point, they will have to resume. The question is how. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Executive Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. David Urbach, Surgeon-in-Chief and Medical Director of Perioperative Services at Women's College Hospital in Toronto, Senior Scientist at ICES and Women's College Research Institute, and Professor of Surgery at the University of Toronto. He and Dr. Danielle Martin co-authored a commentary on confronting the COVID-19 surgery crisis, and he's joining me today to discuss this. Welcome, David. Thank you, Kirsten. So in your title and in the article, you call this a surgery crisis. Can you give us a sense how surgical volumes have been affected since the start of the pandemic? So like so many other things that we're observing now, uh, this pandemic has had huge consequences on surgery and our ability to provide surgical services in hospitals. And really at the outset, when uh, the infection started hitting hospitals in Canada, there was an immediate call to stop all planned and non-essential services in hospitals, which included a lot of surgical procedures, which are largely elective in nature. Um, when we use the term elective surgery, uh, we typically are talking about surgeries that are planned in advance as opposed to emergency surgeries. There's often confusion in people's minds when they think of elective because they often think of discretionary uh, or sometimes you know frivolous procedures. But when we say elective, we're really just talking about planned surgery, which can still be for very important things such as a lot of cancers. What did happen though is all of these planned surgeries essentially were stopped uh, at the outset of the pandemic and only certain types of operations were still going ahead in hospitals, primarily emergency operations or very urgent operations. Interestingly, when even though we're still in the thick of this crisis with a huge reduction, like a 90% or greater reduction on uh, surgical services in hospitals, we're still able to provide emergency surgery relatively easily uh, because the hospitals are still quite empty and because there's so little elective surgery going on that emergency surgery for admitted patients um, can be done very quickly. So what we're seeing is, is this paradoxical uh, access to emergency services in operating rooms, um, but really limitations on how we can provide scheduled and elective care. So give us a sense of the size of the backlog that we're looking at here. So we still don't completely understand it, but we have some preliminary numbers. And in Ontario, for example, just in a four-week period, we were down uh, about 50,000 uh, operations that would normally have been done over, you know, a, a typical volume of like, you know, 55,000. So, you know, we're at sort of 10 to 15 percent of what we would normally be doing. So it's an enormous reduction. And going back to your previous comments about um, that these are not frivolous surgeries or discretionary, they are needed surgeries and patients have sometimes been waiting for them for a long time. It's important to get patients back onto surgery rosters as soon as we're able to do that. And you've spent some time reflecting on how hospitals can recover from this backlog and what the optimal approach to planning surgery might be. What approach do you think might work? So. We think that there's a need for creative thinking and that the business as usual 
uh, model that we have for surgical services is not the best model for recovering from this problem. The approach we think would be most useful, and this is borne out by a lot of research, is through the use of single entry models, uh, as well as team-based care of patients by groups of surgeons or healthcare providers. And we think this is the most efficient and the most fair and ethical way uh, to provide care. The fundamental problem that we're going to have is we foresee limitations on our ability to provide these surgical services, uh, not just for the immediate future, but likely uh, for the next several months and possibly a year or two. So the challenge then is to provide some sort of approach that allows us to address the most urgent patients in an appropriate and a priority sequence in as fair and efficient a way as possible. Let's look a little bit more in depth at how surgery works right now. If I'm a family practitioner and send a patient for some investigations and it's clear that they require surgery, what do I do? So right now what happens is if you're a primary care provider and you have a patient who you feel needs surgery, you would refer them to a surgeon. And uh, in Canada, that's typically done sort of by direct contact, usually by a, a faxed referral. Uh, so it's one of the uncommon situations where people still use fax machines. Uh, the fax would end up in a surgeon's office. It may end up in a number of surgeon's offices because as a family doctor, you may not know which surgeon has the shortest wait list and really you want care for your patient. Uh, that fax gets picked up by a surgeon. The surgeon will then hopefully schedule some time to do a consultation on the patient. Um, eventually we'll meet the patient and if it's appropriate for that person to have surgery after all the necessary investigations, that surgeon will typically schedule that patient for surgery. But that surgeon will usually do it within a block of OR time that's assigned to that surgeon. So a lot of people may not realize, but the way uh, resources and operating rooms are typically allocated in Canadian hospitals is that they're ultimately given to individual surgeons to manage their own list of patients that is within their own practice or sphere of influence. And those OR blocks um, are initially assigned by a department of surgery at a hospital to different divisions. So some hospitals may have a division of orthopedic surgery, a division of general surgery, they may have gynecology. And each of those divisions will then assign root, uh, what we call rooms, but blocks of operating room time to individual surgeons. So what you can start to see emerging if you sort of think through this network is a very complex web of connections uh, that you need to follow in, in what can often be a very haphazard manner to get from the very start where a, a patient has seen their family doctor and made some decision that surgery might be needed until they end up at the very end of the process uh, having the surgery. So it seems like that it's quite an unscientific approach to choosing a surgeon. I mean, you, you might, as a family practitioner, you might uh, refer to a couple of surgeons that you know, or you might, uh, the patient might have a preference. And so you won't get equal allocation of surgical loads to the pool of surgeons available. Am I right? And, and that's absolutely right. And it's borne out by evidence and you can see it, uh, for example, in some of the public reporting of wait times that just show enormous variation between providers. So uh, we've looked at this, you know, for example, with uh, joint replacement in Ontario. And what you see is huge variation from 
you know, one to two months uh, wait for some surgeons uh, to wait longer than a year to see other surgeons. So there's no centralized way of coordinating the flow of patients at this point for most of surgery in Canada. There is in some, in some areas, uh, but, but it's really a small percentage. Most of the time, it is this very haphazard process, and there really is not any coordinated structure to ensure that patients get to the right person or that they get to the right person in the most efficient and fair and equitable manner. So thanks for letting me explore the the breadth of the problem. And let's go back to the solution. You're talking about single entry models and team-based care. And these have been used in other industries, quite widespread use in other industries like banking, restaurants, airline industry, even amusement parks. And they work well. Why do they work so well? And why should we think about using them in surgery? So they work well in every industry where there's queuing. Um, And uh, single entry models are a a technique that's evolved from queuing theory. And you can see examples of single entry models everywhere. So if you go to most, you know, Tim Hortons, typically what will happen when you walk into the restaurant, you join a common line. And it's only at the very end when you reach the front of the line that you'll go to the next available uh, service person. That's different from an older model where you would walk into uh, the restaurant and you'd have to immediately choose a line and there would be three or four different lines. And sort of what people would do is pick the shortest line, but that's not guaranteed to get you to the front uh, in the most efficient way possible because, you know, the person in front of you may get stuck and may take a long period of time. So so that's what we're talking about. When we talk about single entry models, uh, we're talking about the way just about every industry that has a queuing problem where people have to wait for a service, the method that they've put in place to do their queue management. Um, The reason single entry models work so well well, is that they're able to best balance the system capacity uh, to demand at any point in time. And they do it in a very fair way uh, that optimizes the performance characteristics of the system. Um, it doesn't necessarily ensure that the wait time is always perfectly short because ultimately the wait time in the system is a, is a trade-off between supply and demand. But what single entry models do is they decrease variation uh, as much as possible so that essentially everybody waits the same amount of time in the system and waits the least amount of time in the system where everybody is waiting about the same amount of time. So single entry models, you can see the benefit, for example, if you ever call into an automated call center, uh, like if you're calling an airline and they put you on hold for a period of time, they'll say your call is being held in priority sequence and they can give you sometimes a time, like, you know, on average, you'll have to wait 20 minutes in order to be uh, directed to the next available operator. The reason they do that is because they're managing a queue um, with this bank of telephone operators and they really understand the dynamics of the queue and they can actually give you a very precise estimate of wait times. You couldn't do that if it was more haphazard and you were waiting for one particular telephone operator because if the person in front of you was going to be stuck on the phone with them for an hour and a half, uh, you would just be stuck in a very a very long line. So what the single entry models do is they balance out all this variation and ultimately they they make the system as efficient as possible, but they also make it as fair as possible for all the participants. Now, 
if we do this, I think we have to be kind of explicit that patients are not with the same surgeon necessarily who they see in the beginning. So if I go, if I'm having a hip replacement, I might see an orthopedic surgeon, but that surgeon may not do my surgery. Is that right? It's a good question. And that's actually the issue that causes a lot of concern among uh, surgeons and uh, healthcare providers, as well as patients. So there, there's a few things I can say about that particular question. It's a very important one. Firstly, there's actually extensive literature on this that surveys patients with respect to patient-centeredness of single-entry model systems, uh, as well as explicitly asking them about not having a choice of surgeon, as well as asking people about seeing one surgeon or one healthcare provider initially and then having another healthcare provider uh, perform their surgery. And what the literature tells us is that patients actually do value the ability to be seen quicker and by someone, and this may go without saying, but someone with whom they have confidence and they trust can provide good care, rather than waiting a longer period of time uh, to see a specific person. So generally, patients are very accepting of these models and surgeons are also very accepting of these models once they're implemented. Um, so there's a big difference between never having participated in one of these team-based or shared uh, models uh, and then um, actually participating in them. And the, um, the best answer to the question or the concerns people have is the fact that they actually exist everywhere in one form or another, and uh, people find they work very well. So, um, you know, one great example is obstetrics. Pregnant women will see an obstetrician uh, periodically through the course of their pregnancy, perhaps develop a relationship with that uh, provider and develop a lot of trust with them. But when you're in labor and you're admitted to hospital, uh, there's typically an obstetrician who's on call for all the patients who are in labor. And so the person who's going to end up doing the delivery or operative delivery, if that's appropriate, and making all sorts of decisions is going to be a different provider that you don't necessarily have this relationship with. And you know, the same works, uh, you mentioned anesthesia. Uh, you may see an anesthetist in consultation who will assess a patient, who will make a treatment recommendation. Um, usually they will include a proviso in their consultation that when they actually come to surgery and uh, a presumably a different anesthetist provides their anesthetic, that they will defer and say, ultimately, any final decisions will be made by the responsible anesthetist on the day. But uh, anesthesia is a good example of a... Um, uh, a team-based or group model of practice where we don't uh, go to great lengths to ensure that patients remain with the anesthetist that they would have seen in consultation. And, and these models exist in many forms, even outside obstetrics and anesthesia. Uh, for example, transplant surgery, uh, patients are managed by a transplant team, typically awaiting a transplant. But by the time an organ becomes available and you're called on a pager to come to hospital to receive a transplant, it's it's the surgeon who's on call for that day. So these, these models exist right now across Canada in all sorts of different forms of care, including very routine care, including joint replacement, including routine general surgery. Uh, the Shouldice Hospital in Toronto is a great example of a, a very large ambulatory hospital that does a lot of hernia surgery um, by, a, uh, by a team of surgeons. Uh, there are hospitals in Canada, such as um, the Ottawa Hospital, that has team-based approaches to providing cancer surgery. So the best answer to the question, 
will people accept this, uh, is that they already do, and they're already quite satisfied with these models. So it's great that you brought that up, because I think that sometimes with, when it comes to surgery, patients even operate under this old-fashioned, we've always done it this way bias, of, I know this surgeon is an excellent surgeon. He did my friend's hip, and she swears by him. I need to be with this surgeon. So in your article, you talk a little bit about how it's not up to the market to make sure that there is good quality in surgery. Can you expand a little bit on that? So there's a notion that somehow we can identify quality in healthcare so that people know who's a good surgeon, who's not a good surgeon. You know, maybe your family doctor knows this, maybe a friend knows this, maybe we can figure this out from report cards that are sometimes published or through online uh, rating sites for physicians, and that somehow we can incorporate this information to make better choices about our care. And this is a very prevalent notion because we really live in a consumer-driven, market-driven society where people are used to making judgments about purchases uh, and consumption based on their assessment of the quality. So, you know, I feel pretty confident that I can decide what's a really good plasma screen TV that I want to buy from my house. And I might shop around and say, well, this one might be better. And I think this will suit my needs better. The problem in healthcare is it's really hard to apply those principles. And all of the research we have suggests that this type of selecting out of good physicians and bad physicians really doesn't work well in practice. Um, For one thing, people tend not to act on information when we believe it's probably good information. So ratings, uh, report cards, um, types of risk adjusted, high quality performance information that we think scientifically might be the best information about the quality of care. Uh, even, Even in that case, there's very little evidence that those are used Uh, appropriately, either by referring physicians or by the public. But then there's the even deeper problem of understanding what quality is and who actually is a good surgeon and who's not a good surgeon. And I don't deny that there is variation in the quality of care, and we all understand that. The argument that we would make, and I think a lot of clinical leaders make, is that it's really the responsibility of medical leaders to ensure that the quality of care is as good as it can possibly be. So we have to be aware of what's happening in Canadian hospitals, what surgeons are doing, what operations they're doing, and how well they're looking after patients. We should not leave that to the marketplace because the the healthcare marketplace is very different from other types of commercial activity. So so it's it's our responsibility and it's not something that um, that we can defer. And the the notion that you have to preserve an element of patient choice to ensure that quality is maintained is not really borne out by the evidence. And, and that's really what we mean by that, is um, that we think it's, it's our job in healthcare to ensure that we provide good quality of care. The, the other thing that's important to think about is that the more we have team-based care and the more that you have transparency and interaction and collaboration, you actually enhance the quality of care altogether because what ends up happening is everybody in the team sort of meets at a median level of performance um, that involves a lot of standardization 
and, uh, and reliability of care. By, by reliable, I mean uh, all, all of a sudden, if you work in a team and uh, sort of share, share a, a patient load and share procedures, people will start to do more of the same thing instead of having a lot of variation in the, uh, in the nature of the work that surgeons have. So uh, all of these things, standardization, reliability, appropriateness, all improve with these team-based models where you may see one surgeon for an assessment and another surgeon to have surgery. So in general, we think these models enhance patient experience and enhance the quality of care as well as improve efficiency and reduce wait times. In your article, you emphasize that single entry models need to come with the team-based care approach. Why is it really important to combine these two? So single entry models fix what we call the wait one problem. Generally, healthcare reporting on wait times talks about the wait one and the wait two. Wait one is the time, uh, like we talked about earlier, when your family doctor decides you need to see a surgeon and the day you finally see that surgeon in consultation. So a single entry model is a great way of getting you to the right person in the shortest period of time possible. The problem is traditional single entry models don't really do anything about what's called the wait to problem, which is the amount of time you're waiting from the point that your surgeon decides that you need to have a surgery and then the time that you actually have that operation. What team-based care does is it actually brings a new kind of single entry model into the wait two, so that just because you've seen this particular surgeon doesn't mean you have to wait for that surgeon's next available block OR time because there's a lot of variation between surgeons in their wait two. And that, that variation is due to the fact that not all surgeons have the same amount of OR time allocated to them. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, some surgeons have different types of practice. Uh, in our teaching hospitals, for example, some surgeons may do a lot of research and do less clinical work. Uh, in community hospitals, surgeons may be allocated different amounts of OR time for all sorts of different reasons, sometimes seniority, sometimes other reasons. So you may have some surgeons who have lots of OR time, some surgeons who don't have a lot of OR time. You may have surgeons who have long waiting lists, surgeons with short waiting lists, and what that means is by the time you get to the wait two, you've all of a sudden reintroduced a lot of new variation in the amount of time that patients are going to have to wait again. So incorporating a single entry model into that process, which is what we do with team-based care or shared care, ensures that we just do the same thing again and smooth out all the variation and make sure the patient gets the next available appointment. Right now, we have lots of workarounds to deal with wait time problems, like wait time one problems, wait time two problems. Um, you know, a large downtown hospital that I, uh, that I work at has just implemented a huge electronic system to just monitor the wait two times and try and smooth them out between surgeons. And it's really, when you think of it, just an enormous workaround to manage all these inefficiencies that we've manufactured and forced into a system which we've forced to become very complicated because it's not a simple next available type of model. And by preserving those very durable relationships between this particular surgeon, this particular patient, it forces us to try and, and manage and cope with this problem that there's such variation in wait times. Whereas the solution is actually quite simple, uh, which is just to assign the patient to the next available time. 
It's great that you brought up that example, because I think sometimes in medicine, we're absolutely kings and queens of the ridiculous workaround. To maintain the status quo, we come up with these fabulous workarounds that um, we call innovation, when actually what we really need to do is step back and look at the whole system and say, what would a radical change be? And I think that's what you're proposing in this article. I just want to give you an example of why single entry models bring a lot of simplicity into this very complicated um, model of care that we currently have. So I'm part of a, a group of researchers that are actually using administrative health data to try and model how surgery currently works in Ontario. So we have a, we have a project that's using data from ICES and what we're trying to do is use those administrative data to set up a simulation model that replicates the current system that if we put a new random sample of patients shows us that, oh yes, these people are waiting about the same amount of time and there's typical variation. And the idea of this grant is to uh, test out different models of care, including different types of single entry models to figure out, you know, what improvements would we realize in wait times if we could implement these models of care. And we started meeting with our research team and we're, we're, we've got some uh, engineers who uh, do a lot of this operations research modeling uh, on, our, on our research team. And we were going through planning all these different models. And um, the engineer was explaining to me about how she would go through the whole process of modeling the status quo, which is like this hugely complicated system as we were discussing earlier. And then when she was moving on towards how she would model the single entry model, I was thinking, oh my God, this existing model is so complicated. I can't imagine how, how complex modeling this new single entry system would be. And, and she looked at me and her, like, she, you know, clear her jaw dropped saying, no, no, that's, that's like one line of code on an Excel spreadsheet. It's, it's all it is, is just, you know, next available visit, you know, the arrival comes and it just goes to the next available provider. It's the simplest thing in the world to model. And the complexity comes in, just trying to replicate the status quo, which is a system nobody would have ever invented if you could invent it from scratch. It, it doesn't make any sense, it's inefficient, and it doesn't really achieve the results we want it to achieve. So to me, that was just in, in a microcosm, uh, the, clearest, the clearest evidence that um, these types of coordinated, uh, simplified systems are, are the way to solve a lot of the problems that we have. So it sounds like you don't think surgery will return to business as usual in Canada. I hope it doesn't return to business as usual because I think there were problems with business as usual. And if we could just step back three or four months before anyone was talking about pandemics, the biggest concerns that people had with surgical services and, and really uh, the stresses in the Canadian health system had to do with wait times for elective services. So uh, wait times for elective surgery, uh, for specialist visits, to, to see a family doctor. There's a lot of public concern in Canada about access to care. Uh, there's a, a trial underway in the Supreme Court of British Columbia all about access to orthopedic surgery and whether more uh, integration of private care within the system is necessary. And these are the things that were really straining the uh, integrity of the Canadian health system and the principles of the um, Canada Health Act. So access to care was always the problem and single entry models were always promoted as the best way 
to address some of the issues that we have with access and wait times. You know, the short answer to your question, uh, will it return to business as usual? You know, my fear is that it will, um, but I hope it doesn't. And I hope that this uh, process really, through a lot of different experiments in small hospitals or big hospitals around the country, get people to understand that coordination and team-based care is actually very helpful. It's good for patients and it's good for surgeons. It's good for the population. And once people work in these types of structures, they really, they start to enjoy them. They, they recognize their benefits. They see what it brings to the, you know, the, the clinician workforce. Uh, and people don't go back. So whenever these models of care are adopted, you don't see people abandoning them for the solo care that they did before. Uh, you know, like, you know, my father is a, is a retired obstetrician who, you know, for years when he was active in the 70s and 80s would, would drive down to to hospital to uh, deliver a baby for, for a patient in his care. That type of practice is unheard of in obstetrics now, and nobody would think of ever going back to that model of care. So I think it's it's an opportunity for people to experiment a little and, and understand uh, the benefits that it brings to how they're able to provide care. What would you say the longer term future needs to look like in surgery? I think there's a medium term and then a longer term. Um, you know, in the near term, we're going to have to make a lot of difficult decisions uh, about uh, priority setting and um, essentially rationing uh, care because there's going to be a period of time that we're, we don't have capacity to do all the things we need to do. So we're going to have this ethical challenge and figure out how to deal with demand as, as this pent-up demand uh, increases and we need to get on with things. I think in the longer term, we have a lot of big problems. Um, we're, it's going to be uh, quite a while until we're back to uh, any type of normal capacity within the system because of what we're seeing already, which is variable waves of infection that are stressing hospitals. Um, we, with this decrease in uh, activity, we have to think about how are we able to maintain like a competent surgical workforce, particularly for those surgeons who provide care that isn't immediately life-threatening and isn't considered to be as high priority. So, you know, in our hospital at Women's College Hospital, for example, we do a lot of uh, soft tissue uh, orthopedics that's very important to people who have painful joint conditions, but it never gets as high on a prioritization list as someone who has cardiovascular disease or cancer. And if you look at a system that's operating at, you know, 30% capacity for a long period of time, I can visualize a scenario where there may be surgeons highly trained, skilled surgeons who, under this circumstance, wouldn't do an operation for months or a year uh, in, in this setting. So how do we ensure that we can keep, maintain competence and access to uh, services and resources uh, for all of the different types of care that we need to maintain within the system? Uh, th these are going to be huge challenges. Uh, I think with, with those challenges come benefits as well. I think this pandemic has forced us to focus on appropriateness and non-surgical management. And I think one of the um, uh, serendipitous uh, changes is the fact that a lot of people are actually getting more guideline concordant care for conditions that may not necessarily be best treated with 
surgery or other very aggressive measures. So, um, you know, for example, there's a long been debate about whether we're over-treating men with localized prostate cancers, uh, for whom the literature would suggest that for a lot of men, uh, they would be best with just watchful waiting or an active surveillance approach. Um, whereas in practice, uh, a very large proportion of men with a diagnosis of prostate cancer will, will want to have surgery to remove the prostate. Uh, you know, this is a period of time where, just for other reasons, a lot of people end up getting uh, guideline concordant care um, that's probably more uh, appropriate care if you, if you look at the literature. Um, and as a result, we may see some persistent changes with more widespread adoption in healthcare uh, of more appropriate, uh, less aggressive ways of treating a lot of these conditions. You've told us a lot about how single entry models and team-based care is good for patients. Is it also good for the profession? Team-based care and single entry models are also very good for the surgeon workforce, particularly with respect to what we can what we call referral bias and the fact that certain surgeons by virtue of their gender or their age or years in practice or their social connections or some other reason don't have access to the same a referral base or the same type of, of patients. And it's very unfair in terms of how work is currently assigned to surgeons. Um, typically, it, um, it penalizes women and it penalizes people early in practice. If you implement single entry models, it takes away all these referral biases because these models are algorithms and they're, you know, they're colorblind and they just allocate patients to the next available appropriate provider. So it's another way of supporting the workforce and improving um, equity and uh, fairness among uh, clinical teams and surgeons too. This is really an enhancement of our practice and in no way really takes away from our practice. Thank you, David, for joining me to discuss your commentary. I think uh, you've added so much fantastic information in this podcast. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. David Urbach. Surgeon-in-Chief and Medical Director of Perioperative Services at Women's College Hospital in Toronto, and a scientist and researcher, as well as a professor of surgery at the University of Toronto. To read the commentary he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. We also have a special page dedicated to all our COVID-19 content. You can find a link to it in the podcast description. I'm Dr. Kristen Patrick, Executive Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.